0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. One of the most important presidential elections in 2019 takes place this month in Nigeria. Featuring Africa's biggest economy, thanks to its oil reserves... Nigeria is also a key ally in the fight against Islamic extremism in Africa. But there are fears that the country may slide back in its growth as a democracy. To talk about the importance of this election, The Crisis Next Door is joined by Judd Devermont, director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door, Judd.
0: Sure, my pleasure.
1: Why is this election so important to not only Africa, but the rest of the
0: world? Sure, well, I think the first place to start is that Nigeria is the most significant country for U.S. interests in Africa. Uh, It has the largest population, and by 2050, it will have the third largest population in the world. It will actually pass the United States by 20 million people. It's the largest economy in sub-Saharan Africa. And when you think about all of the issues that we care about, whether it's security or democracy or crime, commerce, Uh, innovation, it all comes together in Nigeria. And so we are about to see an election where we have two very flawed candidates compete against each other. And the way in which Nigerian voters decide will shape the trajectory of this important country.
1: Let's talk about the two candidates, President Muhammadu Buhari and his opponent, Atiku Abubakar. What are the big differences between the candidates and what kind of baggage are they carrying?
0: Sure. Well, both Atiku and Buhari have been in the Nigerian political game for a very long time. Mohamed Buhari came to power in 1983 through a coup, and then competed for democratic elections in 2003, 2007, 2011, and then won a historic election in 2015. It was the first time Nigeria saw a party-to-party transfer in its democratic history. Mohamed Buhari is seen as an anti-corruption fighter. Um, Because of his military background, he is viewed as strong on security. But his financial and economic chops have been uh, less impressive. He inherited uh, an economy that had been ravaged by the decline in oil, and then made some really poor decisions about the, the monetary policy that really hurt Nigeria's economy. He's focused on infrastructure, But he's focused less on encouraging business uh, and a conducive business environment. Atiku Abubakar has been in politics since the '90s, uh, perhaps even as early as the late '80s. He was the vice president under the first government in Nigeria from the democratic government in Nigeria from 1999 until 2007. Uh, He has been bouncing around between parties uh, after that election. And while he's got incredible political networking skills, much better than Buhari and probably a better sense of how to get the economy going, he's been known as a byword for corruption in Nigeria for a very long time. He was noted on an indictment here in the United States associated with Congressman Jefferson. And so there are a number of Nigerian voters who see him as a return to the past.
1: Now, the 2015 election that you mentioned being the first democratic transition between one political party to another in Nigeria seemed to take a lot of effort from the international community. Uh, President Obama was calling for free, fair, peaceful elections. Uh, John Kerry visited Nigeria ahead of the election. Are we seeing the same kind of international attention this time around? And if not, why do you think that is?
0: No, unfortunately, we're not. In 2015, this was an all-hands-on-deck moment. Between Boko Haram and a history of flawed, violent elections, I think the administration recognized with its international partners and domestic partners that this was a make-or-break moment. As we've moved into the last couple weeks of the Nigerian presidential election, there has been a slight uptick in international engagement, but it doesn't match the intensity of 2015. And I think there are two reasons. First, the international focus has been sidetracked by our own domestic politics european domestic politics so africa is just not getting a lot of play uh, on the international news coverage and on a, diplo- a diplomats or to-do list and then on the di- on the nigerian side this election is doesn't have that sort of first of sort of branding to it the narrative isn't as clear this isn't the first transition from military to civilian rule. It's not the first transfer from one civilian to another. It's not about rotating power between the predominantly Muslim North and the largely Christian South. It is two candidates who we've known for a very long time who are both northern Muslims who have their flaws competing against each other. And so that's been hard to captivate the international tension. What about now, the- my argument? Sorry, go ahead. Oh,
1: I'm, I'm sorry. Continue, please. Sorry.
0: I would just say my argument is this is the first election, or at least it is a part of a growing trend of elections in Nigeria, starting with 2015, where issues are really debated. Because there isn't this much of a sectarian focus in this election, I think Nigerians are asking which of the two candidates are better for security and economics. And I think that is a notable and really important reason to engage in this election.
1: And speaking of security, Boko Haram has been active, stepping up attacks leading up to the election, attacking villages, army bases, uh, killing hundreds in just the past month. Uh, Why is Nigeria struggling to stamp out Boko Haram? And do either candidate have a better plan than the other one as far as that
0: goes? Well, Boko Haram continues to succeed on the battlefield because the nigerian government successive nigerian governments haven't addressed the root causes of why boko haram appeals to people or at least why many nigerians unemployed nigerians but even middle-class nigerians see boko haram as a opportunity for uh, an opportunity that the government isn't going to offer and there has been both a split in Boko Haram. So there's one element of Boko Haram, uh, led by Abubakar Shekau. He's the, the leader who kidnapped the girls in 2014. But there is a spinoff that has now aligned with ISIS, which we call ISIS West Africa. So there are two different groups that operate in two different areas with two different tactics. But either way, the government has been unable to, to really um, win the narrative war and in many cases, win the battlefield. Now, both candidates, don't have a very different vision for what to do with Boko Haram. The good news is Boko Haram is part of the election conversation. And when I look at countries, not Nigeria, that aren't even talking about their their insecurity, that I think is a really, really problematic um, development and says, suggests that there's no internal incentive to deal with the problem. But the fact that Atiku Boubacar and his party have raised this issue, and Buhari has now responded. And if your listeners might know that Buhari, a number of times over the past four years, has claimed that he's technically defeated Boko Haram. But because of the opposition pressure and because of these recent attacks, Buhari has had to acknowledge that he does need to focus on Boko Haram, and he needs to come up with a new plan.
1: Yeah, Boko Haram is lethal as ever. and. That split that you mentioned, uh, creating the West Africa affiliate for the Islamic State, uh, that's a very interesting development. Uh, Strong growth. They're quickly growing. Is there much of a battle yet between Boko Haram and ISIS in West Africa? Uh, Do they have competing goals or is there a chance that they could see some sort of alliance between
0: the two groups? Well, we haven't seen much conflict between the two groups, and an alliance is always possible. But we have to get back to why uh, they split. The leader, several of the leaders of ISIS West Africa, including the son of the former Boko Haram founder, Mohammed Youssef, found that Abubakar Shegao's tactics uh, were not successful, that they were... They were focused on Nigerian civilians. They weren't, they weren't achieving uh, greater objectives, such as you know, creating uh, an Islamic caliphate in, in northern Nigeria. And so they split, and they're doing very different things. So Boko is still focused on harassing civilian villages and um, sp- pilfering uh, to you know, replenish their stocks whereas ISIS West Africa is taking more of a focus on government opponents, government targets, and they're trying to do a little bit of the heart and mind sort of approach.
1: That echoes what the Islamic State did in Syria and Iraq, and Boko Haram has never been known for caring about traditional governance. Is this resonating at all with people below the poverty line in Nigeria where they might want to support the Islamic State rather than Boko Haram?
0: It's really unclear. And the truth is that in Nigeria, even though we're having this nuanced conversation about the two factions in Nigeria, there is less of a distinction made between these two groups. And I don't have uh, the visibility in how uh, individual communities, uh, individuals see the differences between the two groups. The reality is most Nigerians would like to have be employed and to have a government that responds to their their needs for service and security. And until those things are measured, are, are resolved, they are going to either be coerced into joining these groups or voluntarily join these groups.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Nigeria's upcoming election with Judd Devermont, director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. There is another ongoing conflict that is very economically driven, and it's the fight between farmers and herders. And just a stunning figure in that more Nigerians have been killed in that battle between farmers and herders than killed by Boko Haram violence since January of last year. Uh, What is the genesis of this conflict, and what is being done to prevent this from going any further?
0: Yeah, so the numbers on how many people died from farmer herder versus Boko Haram in 2018, I think by the very end, they sort of got really close, so about 2,000 on each side. But for Nigerians, actually, this is the more existential threat, the most existential security um, problem, because Boko Haram largely just focuses on northeastern Nigeria, where what's happening between farmers and herders is across the Middle Belt, which is a diverse ethnic and religious part of Nigeria. The root causes are competition over resources, such as land and grazing rights and water. Um, it's being exacerbated by, by climate change and a number of other factors, including people being pushed down from the Boko Haram conflict. Uh, but there's a couple of things that make this additionally problematic. First, there these economic classes, herders and farmers, overlap with eth- different ethnic groups and overlap with Muslim being largely herders, and then Christians being largely farmers. And so you can see how politicians uh, and communities can start conflating these different issues and giving it more resonance uh, beyond just whatever the, the resource competition is. And politicians have started to talk about how we need to protect our ethnic group, or our, our religious group against these others and that makes it um, that gives it a lot more potential to spread and become problematic. Now this is an issue where Buhari has failed on. Um, he has not done enough to show that he is the president for all Nigerians in this case. And many north many Christian farmers believe that he Buhari as a fulani has done uh, has not helped them, has been more focused on being uh, focused on supporting the herders. Now, Atiku, who is also a Fulani, uh, um, has seemed to have put together a coalition of uh, some of the Christian groups that operate in the middle belt, uh, the political leaders. And so I think people see him as perhaps going to be better on this issue. Most of the middle belt politicians who were aligned with Buhari have now defected to Atiku.
1: Is this battle specific to Nigeria, or are other African nations experiencing the struggle as well between herders and farmers?
0: No, it's becoming a problem across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you can argue there was an element of that even in Darfur, but we're seeing that certainly right now in in Central African Republic and in Central Mali. Oil is the critical economic
1: driver in Nigeria, and the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation says that daily production in 2018 rose 9% from a year earlier to over 2 million barrels. How is that showing up in the average Nigerian's living standard?
0: For most Nigerians, the most important part about its oil production is that it's cheap at the pump. And every time a Nigerian government has tried to raise the price of the pump, uh, they tend to face protest. But while oil is critical for government revenues, it's actually a really small part of the domestic economy. And this is the story that I don't think is out there yet in terms of international consumption of Nigerian news. Nigeria is an oil producer, but it's not an oil economy. It's the non-oil sector that is actually the most dynamic. So when you look at Nollywood, Nigeria's film industry, it employs over a million people. It's it's. Revenues are over $3 billion, Some say closer to 7 or $8 billion. Uh, when you look at the telecommunications sector, when you look at the banking sector, those are really what's driving and employing people. It's not really the oil sector, which is an enclave, and most of its revenues are going to the government.
1: The tech scene in Nigeria is fascinating. They have the Yabakon Valley in Lagos, which is called the Silicon Valley of Nigeria. And there are now tech startup hubs to help with young entrepreneurs. How important is this and what kind of growth is Nigeria seeing in tech startups?
0: I think this is one of the most exciting things about the Nigerian economy. And I think one of the more exciting things about where economies in sub-Saharan Africa are growing Uh, You see, we're seeing a lot of innovation. You're seeing uh, new ideas about how to address both service delivery, consumption, uh, financing and banking. So there's a lot of buzz around it. The big question I think for all of us who care about Nigeria and Sub-Saharan Africa more broadly is how many jobs will it create? And that's something here at CSIS that we're looking to, to get into is try to evaluate, can the service sector and the tech sector in particular Actually create sustainable jobs. The history of the world has been that if you want jobs that em- offer employment, particularly to disc- unskilled labor, that 's through manufacturing sector. And I, the continent doesn't seem to be going to be following that trajectory, so there's really an urgency to look at the service sector and the tech sector in potential, in particular, to see if there's a potential to hire uh, employ um, Africans.
1: Is there much in the way of foreign investment regarding tech startups in Nigeria?
0: Yeah, I don't have the the numbers, but there's a lot of really uh, exciting venture capitalists who are looking at um, the tech sector in Nigeria.
1: And as far as Nollywood goes, uh, is there a a genuine hope in Nigeria that it can indeed become the new Bollywood of the world?
0: No, absolutely. And in fact, um, we're seeing more and more Nigerian films – Uh, being offered on streaming services. Netflix is going to be producing a couple. Nigerian films are shown all over sub-Saharan Africa. And if your listeners have had experience with Nollywood films, they may be more familiar with the bad production, the bad acting, um, the really terrible plot lines. And that's still a part of Nollywood. But There's a new phenomenon called New Nollywood, which is actually really upgrading all of those aspects of film production. In fact, you can be in Lagos or Abuja and go into a theater that's showing uh, a new Nollywood film as opposed to getting the bootleg DVD at the market, which is traditionally the way Nollywood has been distributed.
1: How closely is the rest of Africa watching this election? Uh, Nigeria seems to have a presence in almost uh, every African country, from what I've read, especially in regards to commerce. So I- is the continent really focused on what's going to happen? And I- is there is there hope, fear? How would you parse that out?
0: Well, I think that certainly West Africa is following this election very closely. I think that what happens in Nigeria will be a bellwether for democratic trajectory of the continent. It's just too many people and too important of a country not to, to shift the balance one way or the other. For me, there's a couple of things I worry about. I worry about violence, particularly if politicians are going to use ethnic identities in the middle belt. Um, there tends to be violence in the oil-rich Niger Delta, where militias are hired by, by politicians. And then, of course, there's the worry that perhaps Boko Haram may do attack during the, the elections, although it hasn't happened in the past. I worry about the credibility of the elections in certain places. We saw two gubernatorial elections in which uh, there was incidences of vote buying, there's been some conversations around uh, whether or not the ruling party has allies that are in the Independent Electoral Commission, or at least there's the perception of it, because one of Buhari's, I think it's his um, a relative by marriage, is in a key position. And then i look at the bigger issues which is if nigeria doesn't address its problems whether it's Tiku or buhari or the governors and there's a number of gubernatorial elections that will follow the presidential election if they don't get their act together then we all should be very worried there's just too many people this country is too important and we have been lacking in a really critical ally because it's been so bogged down by these economic and political and security problems in the past, Nigeria really carried the water for the international community in West Africa. They were the ones that deployed to the Liberian Civil War and the Sierra Leone Civil War and to uh, the conflict in Darfur. They've had to take almost all those peacekeepers home. You know, One of the things I, I like to tell people when, when they want to think about how significant is Nigeria as a U.S. partner, they're an African country that has been to the Oval Office uh, for three presidents now. Presidents of Nigeria have gone to the Oval uh, with President Bush, with President Obama, and with President Trump. No other country has that in sub-Saharan Africa, and I think that's a testament to how um, its potential and its importance.
1: This may not be the first democratic transition between one political party to another in a Nigerian presidential election, but boy, that second
0: one is awfully important, too. It's awfully important, and when I talk to Nigerians, they, they make this really—I really like this point. Whatever happens, the myth of incumbency— is dying out in Nigeria. And that's not the case for a lot of other countries in Africa where the incumbent has all of these advantages and it's so unlikely for an opposition party to win. In Nigeria, because of political engagement, because of some of the money that opposition and the government has, because it's a federal system, and because of its trajectory and evolution, incumbents are going to lose. There will be gubernatorial incumbents that will lose, and there's going to be the president potentially who could lose. In fact. I haven't met anyone. Uh, there's been a lot of different groups that have that claimed one that predict one candidate or the other. But I think this is really in close. So it's an important milestone for their democracy. And because it's Nigeria, it's an important milestone for the continent.
1: And the big hope is that Nigerians themselves are not the losers in this election. Judd, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here in The Crisis Next Door. My pleasure. We've been joined by Judd Devermont, director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com.